Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Bruce Chatwin's first book changed our idea of what travel writing could be. Its structure is elliptical, almost episodic. Its truth is somewhere between fact and fiction. And its richly descriptive prose is built with short, simple sentences, peppered with arcane words and a rich vocabulary. I'm joined by Chatwin's friend, Susanna Klapp, who edited three of his books. She's the author of a wonderful memoir called With Chatwin, Portrait of a Writer, and of A Card from Angela Carter. She worked as an editor and reader at Jonathan Cape early in her career, helped set up the London Review of Books, and has been the theater critic of The Observer since 1997. We spoke about Bruce Chatwin's unforgettable writing style, how working as an art expert honed his descriptive abilities, and his lifelong obsession with nomads. So I'm assuming my listeners will be very familiar with the work of this writer, but for those who aren't, who was Bruce Chatwin? Well, he was many things. Uh, He was eventually a very successful writer. He didn't like being called a travel writer, but that's what he was perhaps mainly um, known as. His writings are actually very diverse. But before that, he he had various occupations which fed into the mainstream of his writing. He was, his first job after leaving school was as an art expert in Sotheby's. And I think you can see very strong traces of this in his work. I mean, both his visual acuity and his cataloguing propensity. I mean, I think he was taught to write in a particular way at Sotheby's, which very strongly influenced what he did subsequently. But he was also the reverse of that. Bruce was always a contradictory person, and he was himself interested in contradictions. He loved paradox, and he loved people who embodied paradoxes. Uh, So... While he was interested in collecting, had a strong feeling for works of art, and was very interested in collectors themselves and art collectors, he was also somebody who hated the idea of owning objects and who wanted to get away from anything which involved him being stationary. So he was a traveller as well, a traveller before he was a travel writer. He liked to, he was very interested in nomads and in the nomadic tradition and had a sort of partly romantic, partly anthropological, um, partly just instinctive um, yearning towards that sort of life. You couldn't, of course, actually say he was a nomad because he had a rather comfortable life in England. So he was all these things. He was also, by the way, the, the two things I think mainly established him as a writer, which he didn't think of himself as being initially, both the period at Sotheby's as an art expert, which I've mentioned, and then also a very important period on the Sunday Times magazine in London, where he came under the influence of various uh, strong and original thinkers and writers and learned to turn a story. And that certainly went straight into his writing as well. He was also, by the way, the most extraordinary talker. And not, not all writers are talkers. You know, sometimes the two things actually seem to tug apart. There are many good talkers who can't write, famously, many writers who can't talk, and a lot of people who don't talk and write in the same way. 
Bruce, I wouldn't say his writing was exactly like his talk, but it certainly embodied the same enthusiasms, the same pungency, the same brimming over, battering um, excitement. Well, you said that people were drawn to him because of what he was as well as what he wrote, in part because of this um, this mesmerizing way of talking, but also his appearance. That if he was you know, portly or myopic or mouse-haired, his life and reputation would have been quite different. I think that's true. Um, he looked to many people like the archetypal British public schoolboy. He was blonde. He had very blue eyes. He was very um, erect in his bearing. Uh, and he had, a, as somebody said, the, the glittering eye of the ancient mariner. And when he was telling a story, sort of, fix you with his eyes and start it was sort of partly a performance it wasn't i don't think he was necessarily conscious of performing he just couldn't contain the stories that brimmed out of him and he liked to present himself in terms of dress they so had lots of outfits sort of tailored to a particular occasion and when he first went uh, traveling and there are pictures of this he had a whole almost you might think of a sort of parody of the English person abroad with the the long shorts, the fawn socks with the turnover, the specially made soft boots, um, the hat sometimes to go with it, and a specially made rucksack, um, which had lots of compartments for all the things that he liked to carry with him. He said when he was traveling, he carried a half bottle of champagne in there, tin of sardines in case he got hungry and of course always books I remember that rucksack when I first met him as also containing apart from the manuscript which was the occasion of our meeting which was enormous also a small world's classics which for those who don't know them is a very neat tiny um, series Run, I think by Oxford, I can't remember, um, of the 18th century cleric Sidney Smith's letters. They are very, very amusing. He was a wit. And it was typical Bruce because it was to the side of the mainstream of literature. And also we had a French, um, and Bruce was a big Francophile and, and spoke French very well. I never heard him speak French, but everybody says his French was very good, um, of the writer Blaise Sondra. So he had those novels. So he was... A package, if you like. But I mean, those weren't the only clothes he wore. You were asking me about his appearance. So it was both an innate quality and the way he presented himself. At other times, I mean, I remember meeting him at one point when I was living in Camden Town, which is in the centre of London, meeting him shooting round the corner of the high street. And he was wearing an absolutely brilliant greeny blue, so turquoise, I suppose you'd say, jacket and there he was looking as if he was going to march across a prairie or something exactly it's rather sort of shabby then beat up now very trendy high street and um, when i said to his great friend um david king art expert on the sunday times who's also a friend of mine that i'd seen bruce in this jacket he said oh yes i know that jacket he said it was as if the blue and yellow made the green. He meant the blue of Bruce's eyes, mm. the yellow of his hair, and then the green of the jacket. So, mm. yeah, there, there was there was this what might 
people say, superficial thing of appearance, the energy and the feeling that wherever, whenever he arrived, he was about to go on walking. I mean, when I first sort of met him, I thought he was going to walk straight through my publishing office. I felt this pent up uh, vigor. So what did you think then when In Patagonia first landed on your desk, your first encounter with him? It was very interesting. And I read the manuscript before I met him. I didn't know anything about him. And the, there was a slight history there was that he'd written already or started to write a huge book on nomads, a sort of treatise on nomads, which he'd sent to his agent, who was a woman called Deborah Rogers, very influential literary agent at that time, uh, who had sent it to Jonathan Cape, then headed by Tom Mashler. And he, Mashler was intrigued by it, but it's clear that it was baggy, sort of hopeless, didn't quite know which way it was going. But there was something there. And he evidently, he and Deborah Rogers agreed that they would keep on talking about this writer. What came to me was a game. I was a re- I should explain. Um, I had a, a job which probably doesn't exist in publishing houses now, which was simply to read. There were four or five of us who, mostly women, mostly part-time, who sat in rather cramped conditions in rather grand offices, rather grand or elsewhere, in this beautiful um, Georgian square. And I was in the, the office where the manuscripts came in. So behind me were groaning shelves of, of would-be authors' uh, manuscripts. And but, but there were special ones as well that you were presented with. And uh, Tom Masher asked me to read this manuscript particularly. The point about it, which would surprise people, I think, is it was pretty big. And I think sort of in Patagonia it's been quite a slim book. Well, mm. slim, I mean substantial, of course, but not a long book. Well, this was quite a big manuscript because you have to understand in those days everything was paper copies. We, we weren't reading online. So I thought two contradictory things. I mean, my job was to read it and do a report on it. And the reader's report I looked up when I was writing my book about Chapman still exists. I said I was intrigued and fascinated by the extraordinary mixture of fact and fiction, the peculiarity of the journey itself, because in that time, people didn't really know about Patagonia at all. And indeed, that was his intention. He wanted to go and write about something that people didn't know about and people thought was peculiar. Uh, and the fact that there were so many historical, artistic, um, impressionistic, elements to the book was extremely attractive but there was a difficulty which is it was written in lots and lots of of short-ish sections and there was a difficulty about propelling yourself from one to the other at least you needed to propel yourself from one to the other the book didn't do it for you so I felt it needed attention I thought he was a a, a writer that that one was responded to and wanted to take further but that something needed to happen to this book to make it a real publishing find what was he like to work with like when he first walked into your office what were your impressions well mainly energy um excitement and receptivity i mean i think that what people wouldn't expect about bruce because he was such a talker because he was so full of his opinions and impressions you might have expected him to be arrogant when he was dealing with with publishers or people who were sort of trying to so-called help him. Uh, he wasn't like that at all. For one thing, 
he didn't think of himself primarily as a writer of books. He'd come straight from, he'd, as I say, he'd, he'd come from Sotheby's through the Sunday Times. He hadn't had anything published. And so he sort of thought of himself as a novice. It was an adventure. I mean, he wasn't meek, but he was extraordinarily egalitarian in the in his approach to things. And he was excited by the idea of being edited, which not all writers were. And basically, we spent a lot of time on this book together. It was a summer, summer's work. Um, and I suppose it took a long time because we had such a good time doing it and because he wanted to explore the possibilities. And I certainly wanted to explore the possibilities. And so the way we did it, we started off in this rather pokey little office next to the ladies' lavatory on the ground floor of um, Jonathan Cape, above us, the rather marvellous spiral staircase and the director's offices. And then after a time, we decamped to the house of his friend, the art dealer, Kasmin, who had a rather grand um, establishment overlooking Regent's Park, beautiful Nash terraced house. And basically, I took, I had a copy of the manuscript, Bruce had his copy of the manuscript, and I'd gone through it, of course, and marked up things where I felt the story needed a bit of a push, things where I thought it got baggy, perhaps could be cut, where there were repetitions, obviously, but there weren't many of those. And I raised them with Bruce every day, and he responded very, very quickly. Most of them most of things, whether it was cutting or smoothing, couldn't be dealt with on the spot. But he was tremendously immediate in his responses. So if I said, I'm not quite sure this bit, well, let's cut it. And hmm. he'd, he'd say that. But by the way, I don't ever want to give the impression that I was instructing him on how to write his book. It was a conversation. I hoped opening up possibilities for him. The difficulty with Bruce was you presented him with a possibility and said, well, you know, I think here... You know, it slack. It slackens a bit. What do you think? He said, "Well, I, we agreed." He'd take it away and think about it that night. The next day, he would come back and say, "Yeah, you're quite. Let let's lose that bit." But he'd come back with two other bits to replace them. <laughs> so it was an extraordinary kind of slippery slope. The thing was growing all the time as we were cutting, but it was tremendous fun because there was story after story. And he liked the intellectual exercise of examining his work closely. And I suppose what happened in the end was that a book that had started out as being slightly unmanageable, although brilliant, ended up as being short in all its um, addresses. That's to say it was short sentences, the, the sections were short and the book was short, so that it declared itself. He called it a cubist book, and it was important that, to him, and I completely saw the point, that it wasn't too explanatory. It didn't have those long details about why he was there, where exactly what he was doing from moment to moment. It wasn't, and it wasn't at all confessional or self-revelatory. Some people thought that was hiding some people thought it wasn't quite that. It's a remarkable collection of stuff. It's a, it's incredibly dense, this mm. book. There's such a profusion of different stories, though, from Welsh farmers to uh, 
German communities, settlers in these places, uh, yeah, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, stories of this, then stories of his own family that aren't exactly personal revealing, personally revealing, but can contain elements of his own narrative, that, that, perhaps in a disguise. That, that's exactly right. Oh, by the way, you, you asked me earlier on who Bruce Chapman was, and I realized I missed out one of the many elements of what he was, that he also trained for a time. Um, as an archaeologist, or at least he went to Edinburgh University to train as an archaeologist. And that comes into in Patagonia. And in fact, I think if you look at that first book, you can find in it traces of everything that he wrote subsequently. For example, there's a whole section on the Welsh in Patagonia. Well, of course, he went on to write on the Black Hill, which is entirely about the Welsh in Wales. There is a section about archaeology, and you could could say that it's a sort of archaeological investigation that prompts the book. There is a biographical theme, um, uh, and there are traces of biography in his other books, I think particularly in On the Black Hill, is almost a biographical text. I'm not saying it's a disguise biography, but there are certainly elements of Bruce in it. And, of course, there is talk about collection, um, artistic collections, which he went on to explore in Utz, which is the story of a collector. Oh, and it's the story of a quest, the story of wandering, the story of beasts in caves and mystery and possible darkness, which is the song lines. So it's absolutely all there, but all contained really exquisitely, though exquisitely is is both right and undermining in a sense of what he did because it was it was also both exquisite and expansive but all contained in these very vivid pungent anecdotes so that you never feel he's preaching to you or um, heavily announcing his concerns i just read it again a couple of weeks ago it had been quite a long time and it's I forgot how, how what a great read this is. I mean, it works remarkably well. It's so mesmerizing. These stories, just one after the next, and they sort of somehow they accrete like I don't know, layers on a pearl or something, and it just comes together into a a whole. That if you just flip through the book, you kind of think, how how is he doing this? I don't understand how this came together, but it works as, as you read through it. I love that um, layer on layers on a pearl. I I I I'd never never thought of that, but you're you're right. It is exactly like that. And I think it, it it worked like that because really that was how he he thought. I mean, he did jump and scurry is not quite the right word, but he marched from one thing to another with great quickness. And he was tremendously um, fleet in picking up any suggestion or any eccentricity or or extraordinariness. I, I don't want to overdo the eccentricity because I don't think that he exactly sought, sought out the odd. He just sought out things that were naturally, sought out things that were unusual. And sometimes those, those unusual things, I think it has to be stressed, were actually things which wouldn't present as being bizarre or baroque or peculiar, but were actually part of people's ordinary life or our ordinary landscape. I mean, Patagonia, you can say in some sense, is an exotic book. Oh, by the way, yes, of course, there's Exotica in it, as there is in Viceroy Reader, his second book. I mean, all his books are there. Um, and it's a far-flung book. Uh, but he was 
Also, his aesthetic was a complicated one, which I think you can see from his style, which is both very rich and syntactically very plain. So he was drawn to things that were often very, in outline, simple, uh, clear. They may be very highly coloured, but they were had this almost cut-out vibrancy. So that later on, when he was, partly when he was researching on the Black Hill, but, but not only that, he was very drawn to things that were aesthetics, that were not really to do with traditional art forms. So he liked, he went with his friend David King, for example, on an expedition in Wales to find architecture that was made out of corrugated iron. I mean, you couldn't get a more ordinary, um, rather despised material. But Bruce loved it. He loved very simple bell towers. He loved the Welsh chapels. You see some of that in, in, in Patagonia. But alongside that, these simple outlines, is this density, which is often an adjectival density. I mean, the colours, the, the blues, the ochres, the, the different shades of pink, I, I counted them up once, so they're absolutely extraordinary. I mean, they'd go around the whole of the page just getting the, the, the shades um, that he manages to suggest in, in Patagonia. So, yes, it's extremely rich, um, and it, it's full of different sorts of feelings as well, and also of strange prophecies in a way. You know, the, at the very end of the book, there's a question, forget this was, don't forget this was written long before Britain went to war in the Falklands in uh, 84, I think. And there's a prophecy about Argentina. It's not laid down as a prophecy, it's just a hint. So there was that element as well uh, as these, this immediate physical responsiveness and just the pleasure of meeting people, the pleasure of meeting the, the, the Welsh and their ornaments and their lives, the pleasure of meeting the violinists, which has a sort of romantic, possible sexual overtone. I mean, it's cut short in the manuscript. I didn't ask him to cut it, by the way, and I'm not aware of him actually doing any cuts on any basis like that. But you might say that some things are almost sort of teasingly abrupt, so that you wonder what might have happened there. It's not just in a romantic way, but in, in any way, there's a there's a, an edgy excitement there. And this propensity to um, sort of focus on the eccentricities or the, the paradox and inconsistencies that he was saying also uh, upset many of the people who lived there, many of these people that he had met. There was a a guy called um, David Bridges or Bill Phillips in the book had said, uh, no one likes being discovered. No one likes looking at their own passport photography, but I found it accurate. It's not flattering, but it's the truth. I've never never known an author yet who's left a happy stream behind him. Some get on their high horse, and what they get on their horse about is as ridiculous as a fish on a roof. They have illusions about themselves that a photographer hasn't. So like he's capturing something, and then by creating such a dense uh, dense description of it and such a vivid description, it's like that it brushes that element of their life up in a way that they had maybe they hadn't noticed before. Um, and ends up being sort of taken as the whole of their life. I think that was the the critique of that, these people. What do you think about that? That's really interesting. I've not heard that quotation. I did know people were um, people were said to be irritated by by it to to some extent. I, I mean, I think the person who 
wrote that gave a really accurate account of what it is to be written about because the truth of it is you unless nobody's ever entirely happy with what is said about them this isn't a question of of people feeling that they're insufficiently praised although actually nobody can be can be sufficiently <laughs> praised but uh, that might be part of it um, but it always feels incomplete of course it's partial it's one person's one person's view so and i think um i think it was very clear that bruce wasn't trying to give a full account of anybody he met it was his view he was a traveler he was passing through he was giving these brief elliptical um cameos and so it didn't that has never worried me about the book um I, because i think that what he was up to was clear i think it's worrying uh when people present as absolute fact and totality something which is which is partial and just eclipsed by their ego i don't think that was the case in bruce's no i think it reveals much more about the writer than the people being written about in the sense that he's focusing on the things that interest him in this scene yeah and, yeah and putting that together into a whole yeah so that's he, true in one of his notebooks he said writing is the painting of the voice the more it resembles it the better it is and you mentioned his time at Sotheby's and how this honed his descriptive ability by taking mm. having to look so closely at objects and create catalog descriptions of it you know layering on layer physical details um the search for provenance and the unraveling of history and how this sort of sub structures his paragraphs and plots but we should also mention his famous eye this ability to spot value i mean what was this all about and and where did it come from do you think well it, he said I don't know what makes me know whether something's real or false, which is really what the eye is about, whether it's a fraud or not, or whether something's really good or not. I, I don't know. I just know. And there are pictures of him sort of, um, somebody, I can't remember who was described him, sort of walking through a gallery at Christie's, I think, with a, a, a crowd of followers after him saying, that's a fake, that's a fake, that's a terrible fake, that's an atrocious fake. I think he got off on some of that as a as a young man. He wouldn't have so much later. He just had always a very very strong visual response. I mean, he had it at school as well. I mean, the school reports are actually fascinating. He went to Marlborough School, where our future queen went, indeed, um, and um, he made his study when he was a sixth form one um, into a slight work of art it had a sofa he was already collecting um antique furniture or at least second hand furniture and burnishing it up and and studying where it came from he was already interested in that um as he was in certain sort of arcane forms of literature i mean he was interested in Edith Sitwell very unlikely um enthusiasm for for a boy of 18 he was also interested in Noel Card like to have a dressing gown so on and so forth um so he always had a strong visual response and he took that with him to Sotheby's and rose very very quickly he was in several departments at Sotheby's the least successful as far as he was concerned was the porcelain department which he subsequently used of course when he was writing Baudouts but mice in porcelain was oh, absolutely the reverse of his aesthetic <laughs> um too pretty, too elaborate, merely decorative. He, he wasn't interested in that at all, really. 
so he worked in the Department of Antiquities, which was probably what his his strongest feeling was for, and also the then rising Department of Impressions. Um, when Bruce was there, Impressions, I think when he originally joined, there wasn't a separate Impressions Department, which there was, it was tiny. Um, by the time he left, it was very, very strong. Uh, but his eye, so his eye helped him spot a fake. And it was an innate thing. Everybody said he had it. We don't know where it came from. Uh, I mean, it was just a strong, I mean, emotional as well as intellectual, um, an instinct, an, an instinct, much anything else. The things he responded to, I think this is important, which were very um, evident in the rooms in which he lived, were often things which weren't designed as works of art at all. He had for a time a tiny room in um, Belgravia, which was designed by the minimalist architect John Poulsen, in which almost everything was hidden. Everything was white. Uh, the books, his books, were hidden behind a, a white wall. Uh, the walls were all white. I can't remember what the carpeting was, but I'm sure it wasn't a carpet. It could have been sort of rush or seagrass or something. Uh, and he had a big feather picture, mm, Peruvian, I think, yellow and blue picture. In one of the other rooms, he had a, uh, well, it wasn't a picture, actually. I think it was probably, it may well have been a, a tribal garment of some kind. Um, that's rather the point. He also had what, uh, something which he absolutely loved, which was a huge sieve or a sieve-like tray, which had been, he'd bought in Turkey from a fisherman, which they used to fan out the fish in them, which had a very, very subtle shading of colors. He loved that. And he had um, oh, two other things in that and in the tiny room, like tiny white rooms, in the famous Albany in um, near Piccadilly, he had uh, the King of Hawaii's bedsheet, which was an enormous thing that he bought. I can't remember if it's Sotheby's or Christie's, which looked like a Matisse, great, sort of slightly apricot shaded, I think, uh, fabric with shells of fish leaping over it. Uh, and also a picture which he'd made by cutting out the catalogue from a, a toothbrush salesman. Um, there were just lines and lines of these little brushes. And you look at them now, and they do look like a very carefully reconstructed painting. But the point is, they were completely utilitarian. That was what his, his aesthetic was. And it's interesting that that aesthetic was honed by Sotheby's, and yet on the whole, it wasn't really an aesthetic which was to do with precious objects. They were to do with, it was to do with utilitarian things, which were just beautiful. I mean, that's what makes his books so extraordinary that he he sees that he doesn't want things caged in museums and so on all the time he sees it in life and that's what made his one of his final books but well, his posthumous collection of photography so amazing because they mingled um works of art with things that he saw as his tra as he traveled so it seems that he he spent his 20s um honing this eye and this descriptive ability at sotheby's and in these archaeological studies in Scotland. 
And then he just abandoned both of those and and moved into the Sunday Times. And you say that uh, working on the Sunday Times magazine, that he found his flair. Uh, he found his flair in the magazine. There's a huge difference between the crispness and economy of his journalism and the straining theorizing of his earlier work on Nomads, the famous unpublished manuscript. That he also developed a way of structuring his prose, which never left him, so that all his books kind of contain uh, sections which can be read as discrete essays. Yes, I think I think that's true. He was greatly helped on the Sunday Times by somebody who was a, a great friend of his called Francis Wyndham, who's was himself a wonderful um, short story writer and a wonderful interviewer. He almost invented the modern day interview. One of my determinations is to get Francis's Sunday Times essays republished because he did before other people write in an extraordinary original way about meeting people. Now, about celebrities and and, and, and writers and, and film people and so on. When Bruce went to him, uh, when Bruce joined the Sunday Times, he went as a sort of art advisor, um, and he did do a bit of art advising. But actually, he then started to come up with ideas. For example, he said to Francis, um, what about doing a story about Madeleine Vionnet, who was held to be responsible for abolishing the corset by inventing the bias cut, who lived in Paris? Um, what about there's this extraordinary collector in the Soviet Union um, called Kostakis that fascinated Bruce because it was such a paradox private collector in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. And uh, Francis said, Fine, you do it. And so Bruce did. And I don't know, funnily enough, what I don't know is how much work Francis did with him actually on the page, but certainly he inspired Bruce to think that he should write these stories himself. And he would have learned a lot from being with somebody who was so precise with language and so brilliantly adept at plucking uh, an unusual story out of the air and making it uh, and publishing it in a mainstream magazine. I mean, it's, when you look at the stuff that the Sunday Times was publishing then, it's extraordinary. Oh, by the way, it was the era of wonderful photographs as well. So the Don McCullen, all those people were doing reportage of a of an exciting and sometimes dangerous kind. And and indeed, Bruce did that. Bruce went and covered a story in Marseille, which was it didn't put his life in danger exactly, but it put, certainly brought him up against some some strange uh, people. That's interesting that you mentioned some some of those stories too. You said that they focused on uh, an individual in order to unravel a swath of cultural history, and you, you can really see that in his later work and in Patagonia onwards. Yes, I think that's right. That was always his his um, way of going about things. It was to alight on something physical and actual and small or perhaps insignificant, and then to pull out from it the provenance. Uh, hence the Sotheby's thing, and and also to to walk all the way around and describe, as it were, every aspect of it, both physical and historical, and um, in terms of its geographical implications. I think that's something that Sotheby's started him on, and that the Sunday Times developed. But of course, you know, it had a lot. Both of these people had a lot to work on. It was his talent that they were working on. 
One of the things I really envy about Chatwin when I read his collected letters was his ability to cage free places to stay and to write in, and often in exotic settings. I, I want to say just for the record here, if there are any listeners out there who um, want to offer me a cottage on the Stockholm archipelago or <laughs> you know, simple room in some exotic setting, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out through my website. I'm a very considerate guest and uh, a very good dishwasher, and I rake <laughs> leaves, and and you won't regret it. But so, so, so Chatwin's propensity, uh, well... You say that he talked fervently and wrote copiously about his fascination with nomads, and it sort of cast a vagabond luster over the journeys they made, but he often stayed comfortably in the house of friends, uh, sometimes too long, that his perpetual motion seemed like that of a perpetual guest to some of them. <laughs> that, that's true. And also, he was, as are most writers, but, but Bruce perhaps more volubly than most, uh, totally upset with what he was writing, and he liked to read it aloud. So... People could be driven mad. His great friend Diana Melly was uh, sometimes uh, both amused and irritated by Bruce following her around the kitchen, reading out bits that he'd just written. I mean, of course, it was a gift and it was wonderful, it was exciting. But if you're actually trying to prepare something for that guest to deliciously eat and probably not wash up afterwards, it, it could get on your on your nerves. But that, that was a very important. That so 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 there was that. Um, and as you say, sometimes people felt he overstayed his welcome, but he was always welcomed originally. Um, that was the point. Uh, the, I think the places he stayed are interesting because, like a lot of people, and I find this myself when I'm reading abroad, I rather read against the grain. That's to say, if I'm if I'm yeah. sitting on a beach, I don't want to. To, to read about a beach, I'd rather read about sort of Dickens and the Howling Fog. Yeah? And, and Bruce liked to write against the grain, uh, so that he would write, he wrote part of On the Black Hill, I think, in Yaddo. Um, he certainly stayed, when he was staying with Diana Melly, he was researching On the Black Hill, and he did that. His research was pretty intense, old papers, the actual farmstead. Uh, on which, or, or the several farmsteads on which the the book is based, uh, and the landscape. Um, but on the whole, he wrote, um, for example, when he was writing the part of the songwriters, when he was writing about bleached and desert places, he was sometimes doing so beside a wonderful, um, luxuriously satin lake in India. So there was water bubbling up while he was thinking about parched deserts. Uh, but you're right. He had a lot of he had quite a lot of um, friends who weren't badly off, or who lived or who lived in very nice places. And if they sometimes got cheesed off with Bruce, they also, of course, were vastly entertained by him and loved him. You know, I think I think it's uh, writing about a a place when you're far away from it is essential, really. That makes total sense because when you're in the place or when you're in a similar environment, the new impressions continue to overwhelm you. So I think you can only get it into that sort of perspective from a distance. That's right. Yes, you get it. You 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 get a sense of contour. I think. I think that was that was the the, the primary thing that that he he felt. I can't remember where he was, for example, writing Utz, which was and where he he wrote um, Viceroy Reader, which would be an interesting thing to consider. Because in a sense, that was the book that he found most difficult. Um, and um, he got very, very badly blocked by that. I mean, it's a tremendously, it's a torrentially um, difficult subject. Very, very dark. Uh, 
and um, and it's very very compact. You know, the writing is quite clenched at times. And uh, he he found it difficult. I remember going to see him when he was in this tiny um, attic in Albany, and he was sort of white with. Um, anxiety and exhaustion are trying to tease it out. And I think that's partly because the subject matter was so disturbing and upsetting. And he had his own brush, possibly even being raped during a capture uh, in some of the places he wrote about. Uh, but it wasn't only that, it was also that somehow he got locked in to this, um, this very compressed way of writing. We've touched several times on Nomad, nomadism, which is always thought of as his big theme. And you describe it as an obsessional interest, which was also a creed, a way of making sense of and of enhancing his archaeological inquiries, geographical investigations, and his own history and neuroses. And even on the Black Hill, his Welsh novel is sort of framed in terms of this obsession in almost as an anti-nomad book, a book about... Yeah, absolutely. But the, the, the place where he really wrote about these theories is uh, the song lines. That's that seems to be the definitive, mm. the nomad book he he failed to write originally. But you say that it was both um, animated and oppressed by these ideas. The Songlines was, uh, was edited by his American editor, Elizabeth Sifton, who I think helped him a great deal. Um, and I think it must have been a very hard book to work on because Bruce had already become ill. And so there were certain things that he couldn't, do I mean he just didn't have the physical energy to do, and um, I feel that had he had he had had he been his most fit, probably the ideas of the book would have been absorbed into the narrative a little more rather than laying being laid so explicitly out. That's not everybody's view. It's often people's favourite book, and it is a very exciting book um, because of its real response to um, the Aboriginal works of art and to the strong sense of, of movement and discovery. But I, I think that he was, he was trying to write his creed in it, and I think that, that showed a bit. But I think he was also stalked by the idea of, of, of death. I mean, that's evident, actually, in the closing chapter of it, which makes, of course, very, very moving. Um, so it's both things. It's both, um, as I say, yes, both animated, but, but oppressed by the importance that he felt about this. I think what you said uh, earlier about the, the um, On Black Hill being an anti-nomad book is, is completely true. Uh, I mean, he himself said, um, I wanted to, I got, I didn't like being called a travel writer, and I wanted to write a book about people who never went out. That was very Bruce-like, by the way. And if you look at his books, you can see them all as being written in contradiction one to to the other. You know, a short book, a long book, a very crystalline book in Patagonia, a very compact and smouldering book, Viceroy Reader. Towards the end, there were the song lines, which is huge and extravagant and, and, and generous, you might say, which is, uh, I think, partly why people... Uh, respond to it so much. There is a real intellectual excitement there. And he was right about walking, by the way. We all know that now. A lot of things that people thought were batty about Bruce, he was dead right about. You know, Salvatore Ambulando, he was right. But then after that, then this tiny jewel 
Utz, which he he wrote right at the end of his life when he was again ill. But actually, that was a book I did edit. Um, and it was pretty much, it needed very little. Um, and he was very pleased with that. He was amused by the fact. I went to his house, the house that he lived in with his wife, Elizabeth, in uh, Oxfordshire, which was a clapboard house painted in Swedish maroon colours overlooking the hills on which Elizabeth kept her sheep. Bruce is very proud of the fact that she put, well, he claimed, she put shepherdess on her passport. Um, and we edited Utz. I remember it was, the light was very, very bright and it was very cold. And Bruce suddenly got very cold. I mean, he was clearly becoming ill, but he was walking and certainly clear in his mind. But he suddenly had to have a blanket around him. But as we went through the book, as we'd gone through within Patagonia all those years before, reading it out sentence by sentence, and it was like being in a play some of the time, it occurs to me now. Every now and then he'd say, uh, oh, I know what he's doing here. I'll beat you to it. And he was sort of exultant at the idea that, that all those things that we'd, we'd talked about um, years before had sort of got into his um, bloodstream, if you like. Anyway, but all his, his books were written, as I say, almost in opposition to each other. And certainly On the Black Hill is his most um, static and his nearest to home book. And of course, it's actually also, I think, that the most biographical, or at least the one if you actually wanted to, to trace uh, an autobiography from it, you could, you could do so by seeing the pair of twins that are at the centre of the book as being two sides of Bruce, a Bruce who loved baking and a Bruce who wanted to escape. Um, and indeed, some of his childhood stories, I mean, some of the stories his mother told about him as a child, some of her memories of him as a child, rather, are absolutely there, pretty much verbatim. You know, the losing of a toy. One of the kids looks up and says, when he sees snow for the time, God's spitting. Now, that was something that Bruce said to his mother as a, as a small boy. And the whole book is a strange amalgam not simply of memory, although there is a strong enthroning of memory in it, not least because there's a Proustian reference at one point to, to war. Anybody who's read a bit of Proust will recognise a bit of that. But also um, there's an intensive research. I mean, he went and looked up Hereford newspapers. He visited various homesteads. He became very interested in the idea of twins in general. Um, met experts on twins, was interested in the, the wonderful metaphysical poet Henry Vaughan, who is buried very near Diana Melly's house, which was actually a tower, medieval tower, which Bruce loved. And, um, and, and Henry Vaughan was himself a twin who wrote brilliantly about the, the landscape and the light of, um, of, that, of that region. So it was that... And yet there were imaginative, there was an imaginative recreation as well. But I think I'm right in saying that Cape extracted from him um, a statement saying that it wasn't actually a Romar clay, because there might have been people who would have been disturbed by feeling that their lives had been simply lifted and put into a book. For a long time, that was my favorite of his books, despite you know being originally drawn to his travels. But I just reread Utz 
last week, and I think I've I think I've changed my mind. Do you think that's his um, best book? It's so polished and so condensed. Uh, it is wonderful, isn't it? It's 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 so it manages to get huge sort of geographical span into a tiny segments. I mean that my particular memory is at the moment when people are in a railway carriage and suddenly suddenly somebody, a girl comes in and she she starts to break apart an orange and the smell of the orange, the citrus smell, fills the railway compartment. It's like the smell of the West. Uh, and that's so extraordinary. Um, that's exactly the scene I wrote down as well. That's the one that sticks oh, out really? most for me. It's like, it feels like you're watching a grim black and white film, you know, of life in Eastern Europe. And then just that orange peels and the smell of it. And that suddenly turns to color or that one detail becomes colorized in, a, in an otherwise bleak film. That's a really great image. Exactly. No, well, it's certainly, I mean, I'm especially drawn to to the books that I worked on. So Utz was one and, and in Patagonia was the the first. And um, I've got a special fondness for in Patagonia because I spent so much time with it. But it was lovely to see this jewel of Utz just dropped by him uh, really towards the end of his life. So I, I I admire it very much. And I think about it a lot. It, it comes to mind a lot when people talk about the former Soviet Union and what it was like to be there, because without doing a lot of sort of dense physical description of actual places and, and, and sort of huge bits of furniture and so on, he manages to convey the atmosphere with, with great um, infiltrating strength, I think. Mm. That's something I didn't appreciate the first time I read it, you know, as a probably a 20-year-old university student in Ottawa, but living in Berlin now and having traveled a lot of these Eastern European places and you know encountered more and more people who lived in these times, when I read it again recently, it just seemed so perfectly captured and such a dense, mm. such a thin, it's amazing how he did this. Well, he was very interested, of course, in the, the, the Soviet Union. I remember when I went to there for the first time, it was actually at the time Perestroika, and uh, 86, and uh, I said to him, where should I go? And he gave me a list of things. Like, is the op- We must find out whether the open-air swimming pool is still open, for example. That was one of his requests. He wanted that for some bit of work he was doing. But he also said, go and stand in one particular square, I can't remember the name of it, and just watch people coming from different directions from the railway station. And you will then get a sense of these Slavic faces, these Mongol faces, that from the different cheekbones, the set of the eyes, the way they walk and so on, of the great complexity and difficulty and the, he hinted, sort of possible full, pulling apart of this extraordinary country. And indeed, he he had an, one of the many things that he wanted to write about, um, but died before he could do so. so he, he wanted to write a, a big um, novel featuring four corrupt nations it must have been i'm trying to remember it was it was former soviet union it must have been the uk france and the united states i think um and he was also terribly interested in exiles from russia who went to live in or former soviet union who went to live in in paris his work and in particular the song lines has come into under a great deal of criticism in the years since he died like he in the song lines he's accused of making things up and to be fair he insisted it was a novel uh, to have a shallow grasp of anthropology, to have made all the dialogues reflections of his own brilliance, so that you know, he's always the one supplying the the pithy remark. <laughs> um, but actually, I first came across it um, 
it was recommended to me to me by a friend in my 20s but it, my first year anthropology professor loved the book she was talking about it and she specifically mentioned that to me as an example of how travel writing can be anthropology or writing about place can be anthropology so um how would you respond to the criticisms criticisms of it and how do you think chatwin's work is regarded today oh i think it's in a bit of a lull at the moment um the songlines isn't my favorite book um i i, I prefer it's just a a question of personal preference. I prefer the the more pared down ones, um, but I, I I think it's an invigorating piece of work. Uh, I can't. As for the mendacity that he's accused of, uh, I mean, some of that is a tease. You know, he said, "I once counted up the number of lies I book I wrote in a book. I think it was actually in Patagonia, not the somewhere." wasn't in fact too bad he knew what he was doing you know <laughs> i mean he's a he's a writer most of these things were fiction um they weren't supposed to be sort of dogged accounts of what was uh, uh of actually going on i mean i find some of his theorizing um a little hard to um absorb um and i think he gets his language becomes abstract, and I can't follow it. Well, you, you've also said too that there was a there was always a fine a thin line between Bruce being brilliant and Bruce being baddie with some of this theorizing. Mm. Well, that's that's always what I I thought. Um, so that for me is a is a is a is a gap. Um, I on the other hand, like what's happened to him now? I remember when. Um, I think it was the letters came out. Somebody started a review with who now reads Bruce Chapman, which sent a stab to my heart, partly because it showed how fickle things are. Because after all, there was a time when people were saying, who can't, who doesn't read Bruce Chapman? Um, now, the point is that it's not his fault, but there, there is a difficulty because he was wildly fashionable as well as wildly read. And so things go in cycles. At the moment, I think he's he's not, I don't know how widely read he is. A lot of the books are still in print. And when you find somebody who does like him, and the people are, are very varied. I mean, I remember I did a, a broadcast recently about uh, in Patagonia, and a woman in her 30s wrote to me and said, I didn't know you worked on that book. It was one of my favourite books. I mean, the point is, it's not all kind of people strapping on their knapsacks, muscularly striding across continents who who want to read him, uh, nor is it all uh, people who are interested in sort of particularly exquisite artworks. It's a much wider and uh, more varied audience, and it still exists. And I think he'll come back, but it, this is not his best time for, for reading. It, it just isn't. Well, I hope this uh, this podcast will help uh, unleash the, unleash the whirlwind of of new Chatwin readers, <laughs> and and also to uh, I'd encourage them to pick up your book with Chatwin, uh, Portrait of a Writer. It's a fantastic read. I really like the the personal approach. It's you get a different element than you do from from the biography of Chatwin. It's a much uh, uh, it's so it's warm and uh, personal, and I like the exploration of his. Um, your experience with him as an editor and and sort of how these books came together that's really interesting for somebody like me, I guess. I wanted to do two things which I think aren't always done. One was to write about somebody I actually knew while the memory of him was still fresh in my mind. 
Um, and after all, most biographies or a lot of biographies then certainly were written by people who didn't know the person they were writing about and had uh, explored them through the work. And the other thing was to write about the work of an editor, which interested me. Um, and this was a, I, it was very lucky for me that I had this chance to work with Bruce in this way. And I think it's a chance that not many people get now. And publishing has changed a lot. And um, people don't necessarily, certainly not people embedded in publishing houses, have the opportunity to work with authors in this detailed and exciting way. And there aren't many authors that are as exciting as Bruce. So how lucky was I as a young woman? Well, thank you very much, Susanna, for sharing these stories with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So did I. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.